When mixing in the studio, you can route audio from different instruments all over the place, and the channel you route the audio to is known as a bus. The more you mix, the more you find yourself putting different passengers on different buses like the world's most musical transit authority. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad you've joined me to talk about music on the effects bus, music on the submix bus, and of course, music on the all-seeing, all-knowing master bus. Strong Songs is not supported by ads. Strong Songs is not supported by sponsors. Strong Songs is supported by you, each and every one of you who has made a donation or become a patron of the show. You can find PayPal and Patreon links in the show notes. Thanks to everyone who supports the show. On this episode, I've got so many listener questions just crying out for an answer, and I'm going to answer as many of them as I possibly can within the running time of a single episode. There's a lot of ground to cover, and our time on this earth is limited, so let's put on our headphones, open up the inbox, and get to it. get started, I wanted to make a public service announcement about music lessons. I've mentioned this in a recent newsletter I wrote, but it's something I've been evangelizing about to anyone and everyone who will listen, and you're all listening right now, so you get to be evangelized to by me. So for the past couple of months, I've been taking guitar lessons. I've been taking private lessons with a really killing guitar player here in Portland. His name is Scott Pemberton. A couple of buddies of mine used to be in his band, but we never actually really met. And then um, I, I just reached out and was like, hey man, are you teaching lessons? And it turns out he was. So we started doing weekly lessons, and I've been doing that for the past couple of months. He's actually on tour right now, so I've got a lot to work on while he's gone. But we'll be back doing the weekly thing again when he gets back. And that is him that you're hearing in the background. He's an amazing guitar player and a really fun guy to talk to about the guitar. So this has been a really fun process, and I realized a few weeks in that it was the first time that I'd taken instrumental lessons in literal decades, and the first time I've ever taken regular guitar lessons with a teacher. I mostly taught myself guitar, though I was lucky to play with a bunch of great guitarists over the years. Each of them showed me a lot, but I mostly taught myself. So now that I'm back in the rhythm of lessons, I can't help but think that it's a little bit weird that I wasn't taking lessons this whole time. All through my childhood, I took music lessons. I was lucky enough to have parents who could afford to support me taking piano lessons as a kid, then saxophone lessons through middle and high school. When I went on to study jazz in college, I took loads of lessons, weekly sax lessons, doubling lessons on flute and clarinet, four years of jazz piano lessons that I kind of wish I had taken more seriously. So many lessons, lessons all the time. Then I graduated from school and I completely stopped taking lessons. There were plenty of reasons for that. I was a broke musician. I was very busy. All the same, I can't help but see it as a bit of a missed opportunity with the benefit of hindsight. Like, what if I'd spent my 20s taking weekly piano lessons? What if I'd spent my 30s split between drums and guitar? The rate that I'm improving on guitar these past couple of months has been so accelerated by lessons that I can't help but wonder what might have been. 
And of course, that's a normal way to feel. But there's no reason to spend too much time dwelling on regrets or what might have been. I still learned plenty during those years. I I did a lot of things. I did everything that led me to this moment now. But I mostly just wanted to relay that story and to say how much fun I've been having, how rewarding I'm finding guitar lessons to be, in the hopes that a few of you out there might finally stop waffling and look up a teacher in your area and get some lessons, or as Scott would put it, get after it. Okay, let's get into your questions. First up is Charles. Charles writes, in A Song for You by Leon Russell, maybe you can tell me what instrument is playing the low brass line along with the piano and vocals. Well, let's listen. This is A Song for You by Leon Russell from his self-titled album from 1970. And you'll hear the brass instrument on the left. I know your image of me what I hope to be a So just in terms of register and timbre, that sounds like a trombone to me, though it could be a, like baritone horn or euphonium or maybe a French horn. Darling, can't you please see through me? But my initial gut reaction is that's a trombone. I'm singing this song to you. So those three instruments, the trombone, the French horn or F horn, and the euphonium or the baritone horn, those two are very similar, but just so subtly different. Those are three different brass instruments that all work a bit differently, but they sound pretty similar and they produce sounds in the same general area in terms of register. So a euphonium looks like a small tuba. You play it with three fingers on the valves. An F horn is curled into a spiral. That's the French horn. You play that with valves as well. And a trombone, of course, is primarily played with a slide. So like I said, my initial impression was that this was a trombone, and that's what I initially said in this episode, allowing for the fact that I am a sax player, brass is still a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, but shortly after I initially published the episode, I heard from listener Charles, who has two degrees in euphonium performance, so he knows of what he speaks when it comes to brass instruments in this register, and his take is that this likely is not a trombone, it's likely a tenor horn, which is a lot like a trombone in terms of bore and general timbre, but it's shaped like a euphonium and it's a valved instrument. It's not a slide instrument like the trombone. As Charles put it, quote, I know you heard a trombonish timbre, but to me the slurred part was screaming valved low brass like a euphonium. Charles then recorded himself playing the line on the three instruments that he has. First he recorded it on euphonium. Then on trombone. and then on baritone horn.
Lovely tone on all three of those. Nice playing, Charles. It's pretty cool how many amazing musicians listen to this show. So Charles says that to him, the euphonium sounds the closest, and then he says that he noticed that on the official YouTube post for this song, for the uh, recording of it, Leon Russell has a credit for tenor horn, which would basically match with how timbrely it sounds like a trombone, but a brass player can hear valves at work. So there you have it. We've learned that this is likely a tenor horn, and I hope this just underlines how many different ways there are to get a given musical sound and how many specific areas of expertise there are in the world of acoustic instruments. Thanks, Charles, for writing in. It's really cool to hear from someone with your level of instrumental expertise. Also, as we get to the end of this recording, you can hear a second horn come in over on the right just to thicken up the arrangement at the very end. It's a nice and subtle arranging decision. I really dig it. Singing this song for you. You hear it? Michelle writes, on Art Garfunkel's beautiful song Scissors Cut, the guitar solo has some doubling effect that I'd like to be able to reproduce, but I can't understand how it's done. If you could give me some help in understanding how to duplicate it, that would be much appreciated. Well, let's listen. This is the guitar solo on Art Garfunkel's song Scissors Cut. So yeah, that doubling guitar sound, no weird techniques or tricks, just some classic overdubbed guitar minis. That is a tasty solo. I believe that's played by Pete Carr, a fantastic session musician who played on a ton of records around this time. This was recorded in 1981. And as it happens, actually, this song, Scissors Cut, it's from Art Garfunkel's 1981 album by the same name. It was actually written by Jimmy Webb, who attentive listeners will remember as the same guy who wrote Wichita Lineman, which I recently did an episode on. So guitarist Pete Carr just recorded a solo and then overdubbed himself playing a second line in harmony at certain certain places. Very tastefully chosen. Nice sounding stuff. So it's a pretty common technique in the studio. Maybe you write out the solo or you work out the solo one way or another. And once you've recorded the initial take, you've kind of got it down. Then you go through and you figure out some places that you can slide in with an overdubbed part playing a second part in harmony. So you play that opening line and it sounds like this. And that sounds fine, but that second half of the phrase would maybe sound nice with a little harmony. Then you keep the harmony going on the next phrase. Then the harmony drops out and you let the lead part conclude the phrase on its own. So think of it as four little parts, and listen to them all together. First the solo, then the harmony, then the harmony continues, and then the solo concludes. They keep that up throughout the rest of the solo, listen to it in the actual recording. 
So yeah, nice song, tasty guitar solo, and that's not any tricky doubling technique. That's just actual overdubbed doubling, and that is a fun thing to experiment with sometime if you're ever writing a song with a guitar solo. Jeff and Ruby write, in this viral video of the Carolina Crown horn section warming up, they go in and out of dissonant chords and dynamics. I was curious what the purpose is of the dissonance. So, okay, this video is pretty incredible. I hadn't seen it, and it's really impressive. I actually kind of recommend watching it cold if you haven't seen it. There's a link for it in the show notes. It's on YouTube. So go check it out, or just go check it out after you finish listening to this episode. All right, so the Carolina Crown are a junior drum and bugle corps, which is another way of saying they're a really advanced marching band, sort of like the marching band that you or I may have done in high school. I at least did a marching band in high school in Indiana, and we were pretty good, but we weren't drum and bugle corps good. That's next level. So this video is of their horn director taking the brass section through a warm-up. They're standing in a circle facing one another and he's right in the middle, which is a pretty intense place to be with some of these brass sections. So the whole thing, it's a real saga. So they start playing unison notes, focusing on their intonation, and then some sections will move up a major scale, which adds some thickness to the chord. This sounds like a pretty standard marching band wind ensemble warm-up. They're focusing on their pitch. They're moving through something that they've written out so it's not just a series of pitches. It's a little bit more musical and involved. This also functions as a warm-up for the horns because they're slowly getting higher and higher on the instrument, which just requires a little bit more breath support, a little bit more control, and the longer you play, the more warmed up you start to feel, and the more capable you are of playing higher and higher on the instrument and keeping your pitch on, keeping your blend with your ensemble, keeping all of that stuff in check. So they keep that going, they're playing a B-flat major scale, but then, toward the end... They begin to alternate between dissonant cluster chords and towering, open consonant chords. And they close out with this incredibly precise crescendo and you realize they've actually been playing really quiet compared to how loud they can go. <laughs> Here we go. So they close out with this incredibly powerful B-flat minor major 9 chord that shakes the foundations of the earth. I mean, it's just, this is a great way to test the dynamic range of your stereo system. There's really nothing like that sound, like the sound of a massive, you know, 100-person strong brass section in a marching band just letting it loose. It's a pretty incredible thing to be a part of and a pretty incredible thing to hear, though foreshadowing a question I'm going to answer in a little bit, I do sort of wish that the director in this video was wearing hearing protection because 
that is going to damage your ears over time, just subjecting them to that kind of raw decibel level. Super intense, but really incredible stuff. So the question here is why the dissonance and why the huge dynamic shifts in the warm-up and how does that help? So I don't know who wrote this warm-up or what their thinking was. Like I said, I did marching band in high school and marching band was never quite my vibe, especially the more disciplined uh, kind of militaristic part of it. Though there's something to be said for that kind of discipline with an ensemble that big. I mean, you've got whatever, maybe a couple hundred people all moving in perfect harmony, playing in perfect harmony, doing all of these complicated, you know, choreography moves and playing all this complicated music together. It really requires a level of discipline and it can can be very cool when you pull something off. So I can think of a few reasons that you'd want to have a horn section warm up in this way. And it's more than just a warm up for each player's chops. It's also a way to warm up the ensemble to get them locked in with one another and into that magical musical ensemble groove that's really important, particularly with an ensemble this large. So first of all, the constant motion, I think, is interesting. The way that each section has to alternate between held long tones that they're just holding and keeping in tune and upward moving scalar motion. You know, they'll move up a scale, a few notes, and they're kind of alternating between holding notes and moving up that F and then eventually B flat scale. So this is a good way to get an ensemble listening to one another and focusing on their blend. You kind of warm up your ensemble control. It locks you into the horns around you. So it's actually very different than just playing a tuning note and making sure your instrument is tuned. It's kind of about getting on the same page. It's a little bit more meditative and a little bit more of a group thing. And that goes for the dissonant cluster chords too. Once everyone's gotten kind of locked in on this initial frequency, it makes sense to kind of test that, to push them by assigning everyone a note in a chromatic cluster chord and making them really focus on themselves for a moment. I don't hear that as a random chord with everyone playing whatever they want. Those clusters sound written to me. Everyone knows their note and has to focus on it. So each player has to alternate between focusing on their own sound, playing one note that really is tough to hear amid the kind of cacophony of this cluster chord, while staying ready to snap back into ensemble formation right in tune on cue. So it's good for warming up your chops, but it's also good for warming up your brain, like I said, and also for warming up the group as an ensemble. So the dynamics part of that, playing quietly and then playing really, really loudly, that's similar. It's actually just as difficult to play a wind instrument perfectly in tune at a quiet dynamic as it is at a loud dynamic. They both require good breath control and good support. But the hardest thing to do is to alternate quickly between quiet and loud without allowing your intonation to get off. That's why the best horn sections, they don't just play together rhythmically, you know, they're really locked in. They play dynamics together. Count Basie's band, Duke Ellington's band, Tower of Power. Those horn sections can play super quiet and then bop, they come out of nowhere and they hit you with something really loud. And that's the mark of a truly in sync, top notch horn section.
so focusing on dynamics is just a good way to warm up. A warm up that I actually do on saxophone that I've done for decades now. I just get a tuner, I set the metronome to 60 beats per minute, and then I play long tones where I steadily crescendo for about 15 clicks per note. I just go chromatically up the horn. I start so quiet that I'm practically inaudible, and then, assuming that I can control my air supply, I end by that 15th click at an extremely loud volume, all without letting the pitch needle move from the center. If I do that up the whole horn, man, I am really warmed up by the time I'm up in the palm keys. So that's some of what I would imagine is the thinking behind that Carolina Crown brass warm-up. But in addition to all that practical stuff, I think a big part of why this warm-up is written the way that it is is related to the reason that it went viral, the reason that it has millions of plays on YouTube, the reason that I was so delighted the first time that I watched it, because it rules, because it's dramatic, it's overwhelming and powerful. It's a sound you almost never get to hear, let alone be a part of, that many instruments playing that powerfully, that fully in sync. It has to be thrilling to be a part of that. That must get everyone so pumped up to compete, to do their routine, to perform. And there is nothing wrong with a warm-up that, yes, warms up your chops and gets the ensemble in sync, but that also generates some adrenaline. Bob writes, you have incredible ears. With all the music you're exposed to, some of which I'm sure is loud, are you concerned about hearing loss? What do you and your fellow musicians and others in the music industry do to protect your hearing, which is so vital to your profession? I routinely bring earplugs to concerts because I find most of them to be too loud, and I hate it when my ears ring for hours after a show. I also find that I can hear things much more clearly when it's not cranked. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts. So my answer is yes, I am continually concerned about my ears and about my hearing. I go to great lengths to protect them and I'm constantly kind of terrified that I haven't done enough over the course of my life. So I haven't actually talked about this very much, but here in year four, I've actually been having a bit of a scary situation with regard to my hearing. It led me to get some hearing tests. My hearing is actually fine. I'm just running into some sort of sinus and sensitivity related things that got me pretty spooked that I'm still trying to figure out. And it's really brought into focus how important my ears are to me and how seriously I should be taking all things related to my ears health. So I've always tried to protect my ears. I've had custom earplugs, like molded earplugs since I was in my 20s. I try not to turn up my stereo too loud, but it's really hard to protect your ears in this day and age. Live music from concerts to Broadway shows, they can be ridiculously loud and it can be hard to have a social life while protecting your hearing at the same time, let alone trying to have a social life as a working musician while protecting your hearing. So I have a set of custom earplugs. I recently had a new set made. You're supposed to replace them every so often because your ears sort of change and you want to make sure that they fit. The ones I have are made by a company called West Tone. They make a lot of custom stuff. They make hearing aids as well. If you go to an audiologist, they'll mold your ears and they'll send them off to someone good. So most audiologists will do this. It costs maybe like a couple hundred bucks to get the custom earplugs. I'd also actually recommend anyone listening to this, especially if your insurance covers it, go get a hearing test. Like there's nothing wrong with doing that. There are 
apps that kind of will test your hearing now, but there's nothing wrong with having an audiologist actually test your ears. It can be helpful to identify any potential hearing loss you may be having as early as possible, and it can also just be reassuring if you haven't had any hearing loss that uh, if you're having some issue with your ear that it might be something else. But yeah, as you write, Bob, um, you're right on wearing earplugs. Having your ears ringing after a concert is a really bad thing. You should go out of your way to avoid that, particularly if you love music and you want to be listening to music in your older age. So yeah, wear earplugs. Everyone out there, wear earplugs, even if you don't want to pay for the custom ones. There are lots of modern earplugs that are way better than just foam earplugs that you jam in your ears that kill all the high frequencies. You can do better for not too much money. I also use in-ear monitors that I got for live performance and in the studio. I only recently got them after years of thinking about it. They're different, but they're pretty great. They're really useful in the studio, actually. So I'll report back on those when I've done some more live stuff with them. But uh, so far, they seem pretty good good and they seem like a good way to protect your ears. So yeah, I really do want to stress to everyone out there listening, I know it can be a pain to wear earplugs. It doesn't feel like a big deal if you just forget them and you go get blasted at a concert one night or two nights. It happens a couple of times, but that stuff is cumulative. And over time, your ears will start to deteriorate pretty much no matter what. So it's just a matter of how much you want that to happen. And actually, here's a funny story related to that. When I first published this episode, I was actually getting some high-frequency whine on my mic cable, just some interference, right around 16 kilohertz, which is really, really high, right at the edge of human hearing, and right outside the range of my hearing. I just couldn't hear it, because at my age and with my listening history, I've basically lost the ability to consistently hear 16,000 hertz. So thanks to listener Kenny York for lending me his 16 kilohertz hearing ears and pointing it out in the first place. I wound up finding the sound using a visual spectrum analyzer, and I mostly scrubbed it out just using an EQ, so hopefully you can't hear it too much now. And of course, I fixed the interference in my mic cable. It's just because I rearranged my home studio and my mic cable was like up against the light or something like that. But anyways, that's just evidence right there in the middle of this episode where I'm talking about this stuff that eventually you do start to lose some high frequencies. And that's normal. Lots of people can't hear 16 kilohertz and above as they get older. But the better care you take of your ears, the better you'll be able to hear when you get older. Because you might not be middle-aged or elderly right now, but you will be one day. And when you are, you probably want to listen to music. So think about your future self now and do your future self a solid and wear earplugs. The better care you take of your ears starting now, the better health they will stay in for longer. So yeah, earplugs. Get them. Wear them. You'll thank me. Richard writes, I'm 22 and studying music education. As a musician, I know how the circle of fifths works and how to use it, but how would you explain it to a non-musician in a way that they would understand? So this is a fun and kind of challenging question because the circle of fifths, or as I usually think of it, the circle of fourths, since I guess because I'm a jazz musician, but I don't know, I think of the circle of fourths, not fifths. Anyways, it's one of those things that's interesting in the abstract, but most beginners and non-musicians won't have very much practical use for it, so it's hard for them to understand why it matters or why it's a useful concept. So I'm not really going to go in-depth on explaining the theory behind the Circle of Fourths here. I've talked about it, or at least alluded to it, on plenty of episodes. I think I talked about it most in-depth on my episode on Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, since that song moves a significant distance around the circle. But basically, the Circle of Fifths is a way of organizing the 12 tones in the Western chromatic scale in a sequence that proceeds logically from one to the next to the next to the next until you've gone 
all the way around. Depending on whether you're moving clockwise or counterclockwise around the circle, the circle either moves up in fifths, C, G, D, A, or it moves up in fourths, C, F, B flat, E flat. And in terms of the key signatures associated with each note, each step around the circle either adds a sharp or adds a flat, also depending on whether you're going clockwise or counterclockwise. So basically you're arranging the 12 possible keys so that they're each next to the two keys that are the closest to them in terms of sharps and flats, which creates a neat, logical, mathematical harmonic sequence that moves in a circle. Now the why is more complicated. One way to think of it is that the circle gives composers a framework for chord progressions since it puts the 12 possible chords in a sequence where each step through that sequence isn't a super dramatic change, which allows for more flexibility when building melodic and harmonic material that moves through those chord progressions from one chord to the next to the next. There's a lot more to it than that, and that's why the why of it all can actually kind of be a trap, and it can really bog down a more basic explanation just of the mechanics of how the circle works. So how would I explain that to a non-musician? So to do that, I thought that I would de-emphasize music theory and harmony, you know, notes, chords, scales, and instead focus on a non-musical metaphor. So here we go. This is my attempt at a non-musical metaphor that can basically explain the structure and setup of the circle of fourths. So there are 12 notes. If you just go up the white and black keys on a piano in order, you'll play 12 notes, and then they'll begin to repeat up the octave. And each of those 12 notes is more than an individual tone like you hear when you do that on the piano. Each of those 12 notes represents a larger collection of notes and sounds called a key center or a tonality, but I want you to think of it as a little harmonic house. So it's got an upstairs and a downstairs, a dark basement and a bright solarium. It's a house. There's an A house and a D flat house and an F natural house and a D house. There are 12 of them and each house is architecturally identical, but they're each painted a slightly different color. A house might have a green front door and a brown roof or a red front door and a pink roof. Some houses are very similar to one another. They might have all of the same colors, except the door is different. And some are completely different from one another. Every single aspect of the house is painted a different color, except for the door. So the circle of fifths is a way of arranging those houses in a circle where each one is next door to the house that's the most similar to it. So picture it, it's a big circle drive. There are 12 unique, differently colored houses, each placed next to one that's very similar to it, but a little bit different. So G, C, and F, those are all next door to one another because they're all pretty similar. There's only one note different between G and C, so they're like identical houses, but the shutters are different. If you keep going around the circle, there's only one note different between C and F, so the shutters are the same, but this time the roof is different. So now if you stop and you look across the way at, say, C-sharp, F-sharp, and B, you'll see houses that are architecturally the same, but they're painted very different colors than the houses that you're standing next to, and they're doing the same thing, where each house is very similar to the one next to it, it's just a little bit different. So moving around the circle, C, F, B-flat, E-flat, A-flat, it's similar to doing a lap around that circle drive where each house changes one thing from the house you just passed and as you walk the houses slowly change colors until you're standing in front of a house that looks completely different from the one you started in front of. But then if you keep walking past E flat and then A flat onto D flat 
Eventually, the houses continue to shift by one element until you're back at where you started. Now as to why we'd want to arrange the houses in that way, rather than any of the other possible ways that we could arrange them, well, it's, it's a very logical and orderly way to do it, and a bunch of city planners hundreds of years ago used that circle drive to organize a bunch of towns that a lot of people still live in today. Okay, the metaphor kind of starts to fall apart, um, but you, you get the idea. Anyway, that's one crack at it. I'm sure there are loads of other ways that you could go about explaining it, and it is a complex enough concept that it's never going to quite be easy to explain to someone who doesn't already know some basic European classical music theory. So I hope that's helpful, Richard. Good luck with your degree, and hey, good luck teaching once you start doing it. I hope you have a long and wonderful career as a music teacher ahead of you. Zoe writes, I grew up playing classical music, 16 years of violin starting at age 5, though I haven't played in a number of years now. Both of my parents were professional classical musicians in their first career. My mom played cello, my dad played trumpet, my grandfather was an amateur luthier who made a number of my violins, and classical music was always something to listen to critically. I love to do that, but it means that when I look for, quote, music to work to, unquote, I have to skip past all the classical pieces because I get distracted by the music. All that is to say, for the first time in a long time, I've found a genre of music that I can listen to while working. Lo-fi music, and specifically lo-fi renditions of video game music. My question is, why does lo-fi music work for so many people as working music? And do you have any tips on how to listen less critically to classical music or any other music? So I love this question because I really relate to it. I've thought about this a lot. When I'm doing straightforward work, like responding to email, doing my accounting, any sort of data entry, I'm always struggling to find music that won't pull my focus away from whatever I'm doing. As you can probably imagine, if you listen to this podcast for any amount of time, I can find something interesting in just about any music that I'm listening to, and it can be hard for me to listen to music that's pleasant sounding and nice, you know, in the background, but not so intellectually engaging that it grabs my attention away from whatever I'm supposed to be doing. So for me, that rules out most complex and technical music more than anything. It's really hard for me to hear like a burning jazz band or an odd meter progressive composition without my brain latching onto it and trying to sort of map out what I'm hearing. So I think that for me at least, that's one of the keys to finding good music to work to. It can't be something that I find intellectually and creatively stimulating as music. I think, Zoe, that's kind of what you're running into as well with classical music. Given your years of training in that style of music, you hear so much when you listen to a piece, especially one that you're familiar with, that you're unable to just unfocus your ears and think about something else. I'm really similar with like any jazz saxophone music. If you put on a Sonny Rollins record, I can't you know, do data entry while listening to it because I'm going to be listening to everything that Sonny is doing. So that makes me think that this is a bit particular to each individual. There's plenty of classical music that I can put on in the background without getting distracted because I've played some classical music, but I'm not super familiar with it. And I know loads of people who can easily put on a jazz record and just let it be this sort of abstract, pleasant sounding groove in the background. So the surge of popularity for lo-fi music is partly because it's music that's designed to fulfill this role we're talking about. It's meant to be relaxing and a bit repetitive, not too harmonically dissonant, 
resonant or demanding on your ears. It kind of chills at a laid back medium tempo. The sounds and the drum sounds in particular are degraded and kind of fuzzy and out of focus. The whole thing is designed to blend into the background while you chill out or do your homework or get some work done. This is a track called Morning Moon by Kinesin featuring Wishes and Dreams via the extremely popular lo-fi girl channel on YouTube, which regularly streams just endless amounts of this kind of music. And it's really lovely. I actually think the appeal of this music, at least for me, goes beyond the fact that it's chill and blends into the background and it's good for working. There's a whole aesthetic to this music, and I think there's a reason that it became popular on YouTube, where music is always accompanied by an image. The image of Lo-Fi Girl is iconic at this point, this anime-style young woman sitting at a desk in a neatly put-together dorm or apartment. She has her cat on her lap or nearby, headphones on her head. It conjures this certain aesthetic, this deep, strong vibe, and I find it really calming and even a little bit moving, like I'm feeling nostalgia for something I can't quite name. So I know, I know, there I go again, getting too musically engaged with music that's meant to be played in the background. I guess that's just my cross to bear. At any rate, Zoe, I don't think that you'll ever be able to unravel the years and years of work and practice that turned most classical music into such a distractingly rich and engaging listening experience for you. Unfortunately, the downside of learning to hear music deeply is that sometimes you won't be able to turn that off, at least not with music that you're familiar with. But there's so much music in the world, it's always possible to find new music that puts your brain into that relaxed, open state. And a lot of lo-fi music is continuing a long tradition from around the world of music for spiritual pursuits, meditation, and other types of focus. Also take this opportunity to recommend a very cool podcast episode that I think you may like that's related to this subject. Last year, my buddy Benjamin Frisch produced an episode of the excellent Slate podcast, Decoder Ring, all about the history of Muzak and the late 20th century rise of productivity music, which ties in with some of what I'm talking about here. It also features a brief cameo from yours truly, but that's not what makes it good. It's just a really good episode of a very cool show. There's much more to say about this subject, about what the popularity of lo-fi music says about our current era, why young people in particular might be seeking out healing music that lets their brains unfocus and relax. I'm sure that's already been pretty well covered by a lot of other podcasts, so for now, I will just leave you with another lo-fi girl track. This is called Stargazing by KU. And Zoe, I'm glad to hear that you found some music that lets you unfocus your ears and just enjoy the vibe. Chris writes, I never thought I'd ask this since I've been singing for years and sometimes even conduct our choir, but do you know Black Betty as performed by Ram Jam? There's an instrumental section near the middle, I think this would be the bridge, and I find it nearly impossible to count. Is it just me? If you have room in a listener question episode, could you look into this one? Um, I can look into this one, this is sort of an interesting counting question. So yeah, let's listen to the section in question, this is Ram Jam performing... Black Betty, which is actually a traditional African-American work song that way predates this recording from 1977 and has been recorded by a bunch of different people. 
Here comes the riff in question. <laughs> in case you didn't catch the counting on that, try again. Okay, okay, settle down, Ram Jam. All right, so what in the world is going on with the counting on that riff that the band goes into all together leading into the instrumental section? The tempo is super clear leading up to that, and then something happens. Just one, two, three, four, 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 one, two, wait. What? Okay. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, one. Wait. Okay. So my immediate reaction upon hearing this for the first time, just my gut level reaction was, this is not some complex odd meter thing that the members of the band worked out together where they're like isolating 16th note tuplets in order to make the song feel like it's rushing ahead of the tempo. They're just collectively rushing ahead of the tempo. They've played it together enough times. They just know how to feel it together. And that's what's going on. And it's not unheard of for a band to do that. Lots of 70s rock bands in particular did that. I mean, Led Zeppelin did it all the time. Listen to where they turn the beat around on Black Dog, for an example. So that was my initial gut reaction. This isn't something they counted together, so it's not something that you can really nail down and count. It was just something that the band felt together. So after that initial reaction, I decided I should do my due diligence and look into it more. So I actually found a drum tutorial on YouTube by a guy who posts as Learn Some Drums, and it's a really good lesson. He's a good teacher, and he's written out the whole part. He goes through it slowly. He kind of breaks it down, explains how he conceptualizes it. And for that section, he's got the drums playing 16th note upbeats into this bar of 3-4 that then carries over into these really chaotic grooves. And even in the lesson, he acknowledges that this is kind of an approximate so it's a good crack at writing this out and showing how it's counted. If you want to check it out, I'll link to it in the show notes. But I also reached out to an old buddy of mine, a drummer named Russ Kleiner, who I went to music school with. I asked him what he thought, and he basically came down the same place that I did. I'll quote him here. To me, it sounds like a riff that the band just played together so many times that they were able to anticipate the pulling and the stretching. And then Russ added, I mean, at the end of the day, really bad time played together is arguably pretty good time. I love that line and that way of thinking of it. It's a good way of thinking of this recording because this recording rocks super hard, but that's not because of the mathematically complex odd meter counting that's going on. It rocks because it's so chaotic, but so unified. The band is just bouncing off the walls rhythmically, but they're doing it together. And that gives it this real gravity and this real power.
So that's how I hear that riff. It's technically possible to break it down and write it out, and that could be a good way to learn the drum part in particular, but the power of this riff comes from the way that the band moves together, how they accelerate the time, tripping over themselves and then falling backward with the whole thing holding together by a thread. Andrew writes, when rock tenors like Journey's Steve Perry belt out sustained high notes like in the chorus of Open Arms, are they using their chest voice or their head voice? Does Steve Perry have an unusually high switchover from chest to head voice, or a really strong head voice, or both? And is it cheating to sing a high male vocal like that in head voice? Man, Steve Perry does sound good, doesn't he? No one had a high A like Steve Perry's high A. So yeah, that's a great question. It's one I've wondered about myself many times in my vocal journey, haha, over the past few years. How on earth do you sing a journey song and sound like Steve Perry? How do you sing those notes, those G's and A's and B's and sometimes C sharps without either screaming it out or going super light with your voice and not really sounding like him? And where exactly is he putting his voice to get that sound? So to actually answer your questions in order, Andrew, for starters, is Steve Perry using his chest voice or his head voice on the chorus to open arms? The answer there is that he's using both. He's always using both when he's up in this register. Don't stop believing, same sound, um, faithfully, same sound. Whenever he goes up there, he's in a mix. I'd describe it as a chesty mix. He's definitely adding some chest weight to the sound, but he's also using his head voice. So he's in this kind of very piercing, powerful mix. He's keeping his air passage pretty focused and small. He's bouncing his tone off the hard palate, the roof of his mouth, to get that brilliant, shining sound. So there's lots of difference in the way that people describe certain vocal sounds. No two voice teachers really teach this the exact same way. There's a lot of imprecision with language around belt, chest voice, head voice, registration, and I'm certainly no expert voice teacher or anything, so I can really just go on what my voice teacher, Nevada Jones, tells me, but he's a really good teacher, so I go with his language. Basically, I've talked about this many times, but your head voice is your light voice. That's your voice up here, and it really just feels like it's floating up in your head, and then your chest voice is your heavier voice. I'm speaking in my chest voice right now. That's my chest voice. When I make that sound, I'm making it using my chest voice. So now I just described that in terms of head voice and chest voice, because that's the common terminology. That's what Andrew used when he asked his question. But I actually try to think instead in terms of head resonance and chest resonance. Because it's not two separate voices, it's all one voice, it's my voice. And most of the time when I'm singing or even when I'm speaking, I'm maybe I'm more in a chest dominant place like I am right now, or maybe I'm more in a head dominant place like I would be right now if I was just kind of not really sure what I think about that. But there's always some element of both in my speaking voice and in my singing voice. So even in my kind of middle register, you know, I can sing with a bunch of different textures depending on how much head or how much chest I want to use. Ah, really light and kind of very head dominant there, and then ah, kind of right there in the middle, and ah, 
much more open and kind of in the back. So there are all these different colors, and you know that I can I can get. It's almost like having a palette or a series of faders. And I at least was really caught up in the head chest binary for a long time before Nevada helped me get away from that a little bit and just start to see my voice as this thing that could sound a bunch of different ways depending on where I chose to focus my air. So that's in the middle register, but as you get higher up and go into the passaggio for a tenor, that's up to F, F sharp, G, A, maybe even a B if you're really warmed up. Once a tenor is up that high, you basically have to be using some element of your head resonance just to maintain control. This is still something that's really hard for me. I mean, a high A, that is no joke. I'm still working really hard on narrowing the distance between going up into my upper register in a more head voice mix versus going up to it in a more chesty, powerful mix. And I do use the word mix because if you sing a high A, it might sound like you're belting from your chest voice, but you are probably using some kind of mix. I mean, it's possible to belt up that high, but most technically skilled singers, and Steve Perry is an exceedingly skilled technical singer, they'll use just the right mix of chest and head, and they'll hone that sound over years and years of practice and conditioning until they can just nail it, and it's so powerful and so clear and full that if you haven't spent years and years of your life working on hitting those notes, you can't really fathom how a singer could sing that high up with that much power, precision, and control. So while I can explain what he's doing in terms of resonance, that only really tells you part of it. Andrew also asked if Steve Perry had an unusually high passaggio, and I don't actually know the answer to that, but he definitely has a pretty high voice, and I would imagine that there are things about his vocal folds that give him a little more natural elasticity than some other people might have. And I think there's probably too much focus on natural ability when it comes to singing, since it is a thing. I mean, some people do have a natural affinity toward their voice, a sort of natural mechanical understanding of it or even a vocal apparatus, vocal folds that allow them to more easily do things that might be difficult for most people. So I think that just about anyone can learn to sing well with the right teacher and the right work ethic, but I do think it's a safe bet that Steve Perry, just at a default state, if you can imagine that, he can probably sing those high notes more easily than a lot of people could. And as for your last question, whether it's cheating to sing the song entirely in head voice, or at least that part of the chorus, I don't think cheating is the right way to think of it, since it's not like a game. But if you're doing this song at karaoke, for example, for starters, props to you for your courage. If you're doing this song at karaoke, you get to the chorus and you go into your head voice, and I can imagine that would sound a little bit wimpy and anticlimactic. So, you know, if you're doing an acoustic guitar cover of the song, that could sound really nice if you float the A. But on this kind of power ballad with the full band going, I do think you kind of want to have that full, powerful, controlled mix if you want to have the impact of the original. And that's one of the hardest things that a vocalist can do. So don't be too hard on yourself if you have to work up to it a bit before you can pull it out at the club. My teacher tells this story about Pavarotti, the great opera tenor Pavarotti, at least I'm pretty sure that's who this story was about. Um, he would sing a demonstration of a piece and he would hit this beautiful high G. And then he would say, that G, I love that G. It took me 10 years of work to be able to sing that G. And I think that's a good way to think of it. Getting your voice to a place where it can sing in your upper register and beautifully mix chest and head. You can cover it or let it ring out with ease and clarity. That takes years and years of work. And that's why there are a lot of singers in the world, but there's only one Steve Perry. So here I am, you see. 
Let's close out with an email that comes from listener Brett, who writes in not with a question, but more of an observation and an interpretation related to my episode from last year about Carol King's wonderful song, You've Got a Friend. Brett writes, I was listening today to the Carol King episode about You've Got a Friend, and you mentioned that you might play the bridge earlier if you were to cover it. I implore you not to. I think the bridge on this song comes very late in the arrangement because the song is about friendship. What you have no doubt found from your own friendships is that even if you've known someone for a long time, in times of trouble, you'll find hidden depths in that friendship. I like to think that's why the bridge comes so late in the song. You're in a familiar rhythm of friendship, and then things get tough, and you realize there's even more there that you didn't realize. Now ain't it good to know that you've got a friend So I don't really have anything to add. I just love that interpretation of the song and why the bridge would be so late. And I wanted to share it with you all here at the end of the episode, because if you're here at the end of the episode, you've already learned the lesson that Brett has explained. In friendships and in life, sometimes the best things take a little while to reveal themselves. And that'll do it for this latest mailbag episode. Thanks so much, as always, to everyone who sent in a question. And if you sent in one that I haven't gotten to, don't worry. I pull questions from all over the place, all over the timeline when I put these episodes together, so you never know when I may get to yours. If you have a musical question that you think might be good for the show, by all means, send it to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. And you know, thanks to everyone out there for listening. I've been having a great time making the show lately. I've been having a great time with music more broadly lately. And I hope you're all still having fun listening. If you do dig the show, I hope you'll consider spreading the word, telling some friends about it, or leaving Strong Songs a review on your podcast app wherever you're listening to this. Reviews are really helpful. They're theoretically helpful in that they maybe possibly please some algorithm somewhere, but they also are actually helpful because when people are considering a new show and looking at it, it definitely helps if there are some reviews of the show urging them onward and telling them that it's good. Of course, you can also support Strong Songs by making a donation or becoming a patron. Links to PayPal and Patreon are down in the show notes. And a huge thank you to everyone who's signed up to be a patron here in year four. I really, really appreciate your support. Of course, there's also links down there to my newsletter, the Strong Songs Discord. It's been a lot of fun there lately. The merch store, plenty of other stuff. This episode's outro solo was a fun one. Listener Oren Confer wrote in to say how much he loved the show and that he'd recorded a harmonica solo if I ever wanted to use it. I took one listen and said, yes, of course, I would love to feature this solo. I was actually just talking in a Patreon Q&A about the fact that I haven't talked about harmonica enough on the show. So stick around for Oren on the Harp, and I'll see you all in two weeks with yet another strong song. Strong song.